Healthcare Unfiltered today is an update on what's going on with the ABIM maintenance of certification issue. We have done several podcasts on the maintenance of certification for the ABIM. I even had the CEO of the ABIM, Dr. Richard Barron, on a podcast episode uh, last year in 2023. A lot of things have happened. I hosted the American Society of Hematology president, the ASCO CEO, cardiology board members, and many folks. And the question is, what is next? What happens next? Give us an update. Is there any progress forward? Or all, all of this is for nothing. Today's podcast, I bring back Dr. Aaron Goodman, the physician who started the petition on July 21st, 2023, that gathered more than 21,000 signatures asking to stop maintenance of certification. Dr. Vincent Raj Kumar, who has been very vocal on social media against the maintenance of certification, and Dr. Wes Fisher, an electrophysiologist here in Chicago, who has done a lot of work over the past decade against the ABIM MOC, and he, all of them are give a, going to give us updates into what has happened pertaining to the ABIM MOC updates. From a legal perspective, social media perspective, what's going on with the academic center, society, payers, everything you need to know about the ABIM MOC update is going to be here today. Just in case you are not known, although I think everybody knows you, maybe a quick round of introduction. Uh, Aaron, I appreciate you wearing the best t-shirt in business, which reminds me I need to mail one for Wes. Hey, I'm a, an associate professor at UCSD in sunny San Diego. Uh, I do bone marrow transplant, uh, leukemias, lymphomas, myeloma, uh, big on education and social media. Great to be back, Shadi. No, good to have you, and I appreciate you uh, uh, having a nice hairstyle for us on this podcast. Uh, Wes? Uh, I just got out of clinic. I'm a cardiac electrophysiologist. Um, I don't know how many boards I, I hold anymore because only one is still uh, valid, I guess, according to the ABIM. They just charge me $760 a year to maintain my certifications but because I have to pay for them, I already have paid for them, but and yet they're still billing me $760 more this year. So uh, I don't quite understand that, um, but they change policies and this is what they always do. And and we are uh, unfortunately subjugated to regulatory entrapment by these folks, uh, which aren't representative of any of us. So uh, I've been working hard. I'm the uh, Treasurer of Practicing Physicians of America, a 501c6 organization we formed uh, to try and uh, help uh, give doctors a voice in this uh, very crowded world of nonprofits. Uh, but we truly are all uh, unpaid members of that board and have helped support litigation against several member boards, uh, actually to support the plaintiffs who have brought uh, class action lawsuits against various member boards of the American Board of Medical Specialties. So that's my kind of side gig uh, while I'm still doing very much mostly clinical medicine all the time. Well, we're going to focus, we're going to have you focus on the litigation, give us an update, but uh, glad that you uh, did clinic today. It means that you remain board certified and I'm sure your patients were asking to see your maintenance of certification before you do any procedure on them. Absolutely. Uh, Vincent. Thanks for having me again. 
uh, on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. I work at the Mayo Clinic. I am a hematologist, oncologist, and I um, specialize in multiple myeloma and re related disorders. I'm involved in education, practice, and research. Very passionate that patients get the best care, which I think is the goal of all of us. We want to make sure that we treat our patients to the best of our abilities and with the right standards that patients expect from us. So in that regard, I'm committed to um, making sure that I'm up to date and making sure that we all practice at a high level of standard. So I'm looking forward to, to discussing with you how or if ABIM and its um, maintenance of certification helps or hinders those goals. Of course, I have to take the mandatory picture because we have to make sure that people are ready to uh, stay tuned for this. No, I appreciate this. And I genuinely say that all of you, um, I would be very comfortable being cared by you if I ever have any health issue or any of my family members, truthfully, which is really the core of why we get a little bit um, uncomfortable when we have to do this extra thing. I want to I wanna just start by... Um, Maybe, Vincent, just a quick thing. I want you to take away your, your physician hat, your educator hat. If I'm a patient or, you know, I don't know, I'm like a family member. And you tell me that you need to take, a, you know, a few questions every three months or, you know, to make sure you're up to date, all of these things. I'm going to say, well, that's that's a good thing. I mean, I want my doctor to be up to date and I want to make sure that they know what's going on. Help help the layman person understand why you think this is not a good idea. So first of all, you know, I would tell them that um, as doctors, we go through four years of medical school, residency training, and passing an initial board certification to make sure that we are competent in the specialty that we have chosen to practice. Those who are specialists take on additional three to four years of training to specialize in that field. So we've dedicated a lot of years to studying uh, and learning the craft. It's like riding a bicycle. Once you learn it, you don't forget. I know how to take a history. I know how to examine a patient. I know which when, when a patient's not well, when I need to call for help. Those are things that I cannot, you know, just forget over time. It's it's in your DNA as a physician. Answering multiple choice questions every three weeks or three months is not going to change that. Secondly, patients should know that we as doctors are committed to lifelong learning. We are doing continual, continuous, continuing medical education throughout our careers. Every year, we have to report certain amount of credits to maintain our licensure. We are required by our hospitals who credential us to show that we are competent. Most of us are involved with teaching and we are constantly educated, not just by um, our peers and seniors, but also by our students who, who, um, who interact with us. Many of us are also involved in research and publication. Overall, there is a culture of learning, but one thing all of us share is we want to do the right thing for the patients. So in case we can never know everything, we are always treating patients where something is new, something we have to learn. The, the fields move so fast that we are 
constantly having to um, brush up on things. And I mean, without a doubt, every physician will tell you every day they are asking a colleague or friend for help in a situation that they don't know uh, or they're not comfortable with. So in this environment, artificially telling physicians that you should answer um, a certain number of questions every three months, many of them are either outdated or ir irrelevant to the practice that they are and uh, where you can Google the answer uh, and you have to pay a lot of money to do this exam. It, it just doesn't, um, is not necessary in, it takes away from quality time that we have to spend with um, family, friends and, and work-related activities. So that's a very nice um, intro. Um, Aaron, I think, uh, I mean, Wes has spent years dealing with this and he's going to give us a little bit on why the litigation started because I want to understand the legal aspect of this. But you started something in the summer of 2023 about this like petition and everything and you, you have a huge social media presence and platform so you leverage this. A, uh, why did you start this? And B, where do things stand? Is the petition still there? Like, is there is there something that's coming out of this petition that you started? Is there anything that you could do further? Like, tell us where do things stand? Because you started what some have called a revolution. Yeah, I know. I thank you. And I just want to add one more thing to what Vincent said. Uh, and I agree much with what he said, is that medicine's complex. The patient in front of you is complex. And I would tell I would tell someone asking that question, no multiple choice question can prepare or even help a physician for for an individual patient. Uh, and more and more, even when I learn about individual diseases and strategies to manage an individual, I, it's hard to even assimilate that uh, to the given patient in front of me. Nonetheless, a multiple choice question. Uh, um, so th that's what I would try to explain. Much like, you know, a pilot, like, do you feel good if they're answering a multiple choice question on how to handle like a critical landing? I mean, that no, it's practice and being immersed in those situations. So uh, I would tell them. And I would also tell it probably provides a false sense of reassurance. Oh, I got a great doctor. He passed these uh, questions every three months. So when it's really not doing much. But yeah, you know, how I, uh, this, for those who don't know, I, I started the petition really six or seven months ago when I got an email uh, now I'm, you know, I think my sixth or seventh years in attending, and uh, I have three boards: one in internal medicine, uh, hematology, and oncology. And like, I was real busy on call, and I, I got like a hundred emails over the course of a month about all these mocks I was deficient on, and it it just pissed me off. Uh, um, and I I started delving more in, and I just started this petition uh, on social media. And um, one of the very few things that united, uh, we all disagree on politics, how to manage patients, which are favorite sports teams, but this was the great uniter in, in academic medicine, social social media medicine and Twitter. Uh, just about everyone uh, was like, yeah, this mock uh, maintenance of certification, it makes me miserable. It frustrates me. It's an inconvenience. It takes away time from things that I care about. It hinders my patient care and I'm not benefiting at all from this. And I already keep up with continuing medical education and things that are interesting to me and what helps my practice. Why am I forced to do this on top of the fact that I already did my initial board certification for me three times and paid a lot of money and I have to do this additional thing. And we, we all agreed the petition was started to basically say, hey, we need to end this mock uh, um, so, so can you can, you, can yeah. you continue the petition? Can you add to the petition? Because the petition started, you gathered like almost 21,000 21,000. I just looked over 21,000 signatures. So yeah. Did the petition get rid of mock? Uh, no, <laughs> we're still doing it. And we'll talk about some of the efforts that, 
uh, Dr. Fisher is doing. Uh, but I do think it definitely started uh, kind of a movement, as you can say, and uh, things are happening uh, within the various uh, uh, academic uh, uh, societies, including ASCO, uh, American Society of Hematology, where they're trying to make a change in this. It's not the ideal change that I want. I want mock completely gone, uh, but they are starting to reevaluate and uh, people are listening when they see the amount of, of, so of anger. So do you think, like, kind of... can you do another petition? Like, do you renew interest by doing another petition? Is there any value in this or really... No, I think I think the petition, you know, it's there now. I think most people are aware of these things, at least on social media. Yeah. And uh, I don't think adding another petition will will help at this point. It shows, hey, there's at least 21,000 doctors or mostly doctors that agree that this really needs to come to an end. And the next level is occurring as we speak, uh, where various academic societies are kind of reorganizing and asking, can we change this? Again, I want it to get rid of, um, not just changed. Um, and I'm really, you know, what I was trying, and we'll talk more about this end is, you know, I would, I want people, this may sound awful, but um, I would be embarrassed now to work for the American Board of Internal Medicine. Uh, um, I wouldn't be proud of that on my credential. Um, I wouldn't want to volunteer my time for them. I already give them my money and time. Why would I want to give yeah. them more of it yeah. to help something that makes my colleagues miserable? I want no part of that. And I want everyone else to want to think the same, feel the same, or at least most of us. Uh, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, when someone presents and they're like, I'm the chair of this thing at the ABIM, I want people in the audience to stand up and be like, what the hell are you doing? Or, you know, be courteous, obviously. Uh, but what, what's going on? How do you think? That's what I am hoping that this is created. Uh, yeah. No, that, that's a good point. We're going to talk about this as well as some of the society efforts. But but Wes, you, you, you've spent, um, we all admire your work. I mean, you spent a lot of time on this, as you said in the introduction. But you came to the conclusion, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. You came to the conclusion that legal action is the only way. Like, it's great that you guys are doing all of this. I'll sign to the petition, I'll talk to societies, I do all of this. But legal action was the route that you believed is the best way to do this. A, why do you think the only way is the is the courts? B, what's the actual case? Like, I mean, I mean, if I'm like the would the court dismiss these cases? Like what, what is the actual case that you're gonna take to court? Well, thanks, uh, Chetty. I think that. Uh, the evolution of this entire process uh, has been now over 10 years in the making when I had to recertify for the third time in 2013. And like many of the upper, other uproars and the various changes that have been made up to this time, uh, it was incredibly stressful. At the time, I had to pass both cardiology and cardiac electrophysiology uh, in order to sit just as a cardiac electrophysiologist. So I also had to remember all of general cardiology because they had double jeopardy at the time. Uh, so if I didn't pass my cardiology boards, I couldn't pass my cardiac electrophysiology boards. The American College of Cardiology uh, remarkably came to our rescue and uh, eliminated that double jeopardy situation, but not after I had suffered through the anxiety of having to do uh, something that I hadn't done for a long time and passed a cardiology board in order to be a cardiac electrophysiologist. It just was not something that was pleasant or uh, productive uh, for me uh, because I don't do general cardiology for the most part. That said, we really can't isolate things from uh, each other. Uh, the boards would like us to think that we're all super subspecialists, but in fact, we're all internists. Under the auspices of American Board of Internal Medicine, we're also cardiologists and we're also 
cardiac electrophysiologists, for those of us who've decided to subspecialize in these areas, uh, no healthcare condition can live separate from the other conditions that go on in the body due to an you know abnormality in some organ systems. So it's all kind of this has all been concocted to basically become another revenue stream for our boards. And um, it is helpful. We have so such diverse educational needs in the various areas. And um, there is value in being a specialist in a certain area because you can really drill down in that area. But none of us are, are total specialists. We have to be able to appreciate everything else that others are doing. That said, um, we tried many ways, many avenues to try to end maintenance of certification when it became obvious that we were subject to regulatory capture by a physician self-regulation system that does not allow doctors to have representatives uh, that they elect. And, um, and so therefore there are people who are elites in our academic world who are telling us what we have to do. And this simply is not a professional model in any way, shape or form. Nonetheless, we've allowed it to happen because we've been busy taking care of patients and uh, an entire construct and, you know, has erected itself around this whole concept of professional self-regulation. Now, that's all fine and dandy if you have people who are there for uh, the right reasons and people who really do want to put patient care at the apex of what's going on. But increasingly, we've seen dramatic conflicts of interest between not only uh, these uh, so-called self-regulating nonprofits, but also politics. And politics and medicine are very, very different things. And uh, they really don't mix well at all. And unfortunately, uh, when we have uh, people who are uh, in charge of this, they want to also uh, do these kind of things to gain favor with the political nature of the business of medicine. And the business of medicine happens to be the largest business in the United States with over an annual asset uh, of and production of about $4.5 trillion. So we're talking the biggest business in the United States is healthcare. Now, that said, when we tried to end maintenance of certification because we felt the squeeze of what they were doing and watching the costs increase over 450% for a physician to remain board certified, we, we decided to try to go to the AMA and end it there, uh, naively thinking that they would have the power to change this. And it was we immediately met and had to confront the American Board of Medical Specialties, the mothership over all of these member boards of the American uh, Board of Medical Specialties. And uh, they were vehement that obviously they didn't want to have anybody uh, encroaching on their uh, very lucrative cookie jar. So uh, the, the AMA was not an avenue we could pursue in large part because the American Board of Medical Specialties came from the AMA as did the American Board of Internal Medicine. And so uh, when we talk about these things, we have to understand that we are talking about a level 
well above the American Board of Medical Specialties. We're talking about the ACGME, the Accreditation Council of Graduate Medical Education, which is comprised of the ABMS, the American Hospital Association, the American Medical Association, National Board of Medical Examiners, the uh, Committee for um, uh, the uh, various medical societies um, uh, all have parts of the ACGME. So, but, Wes, I don't want to interrupt. I just want to make sure, though, you hit on the core of what is the legal case. Okay. Like, I, I, I think that yeah, I, I, all yeah, of that... I, in the weeds. Yeah, yeah. All of that, I, I, get, I get that. But yeah. I'm trying to think, what are you suing them for? I'll get to that in two seconds. Okay. Because we tried also to go to states and tried to get legislation to end maintenance of certification because we didn't think it was proper. And why did we think it wasn't proper? Because we believe it violates antitrust law. I see. And it becomes a monopoly. They have a total monopoly over continuous professional development of physicians. And in fact, are trying to substitute continuing medical education, which we need for state licensure, for their maintenance of certification credential, which they have trademarked as their own. When in fact, there's been absolutely no proof that maintenance of certification improves patient care or quality or safety of care that we deliver. And it is that basis of the monopoly that allows them to raise prices, uh, prevents us from be becoming, uh, they've marketed maintenance of certification as a quality metric in our Affordable Care Act. They have marketed maintenance of certification to hospitals and insurers as a quality metric uh, without any proof that it, it has any value whatsoever, except it is an extremely lucrative money-making operation. And because of that, the American Board of Internal Medicine in December of 2018 was sued on a class action basis with, by four internists for antitrust violations of the Sherman Act. And with that also, other forms of uh, inappropriate um, executive uh, remuneration and things that went along with that. The antitrust uh, implications are significant. It reduces the market for physician. It allows uh, the American Board of Medical Specialties to own uh, continuing professional development of physicians and to raise prices at, at will. So the core of this is antitrust violation. Correct. And um, internists have filed this class action suit. And we're going to go into an update on this in a little bit. I want to, um, this is very helpful, understanding the core argument from a legal perspective. Uh, Vincent, take away the law, all of these things. I mean, you're, you're, what are you trying? I mean, in your view, what can you work on? What can we work on as physicians? We um, you heard my interview with the ASH president. Um, you heard my interview with the ASCO CEO. We 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 have all of these societies trying to do certain things. Um, yeah, what what can we do on on the um, hostile level? I guess on the academic center level. Is there anything from your standpoint that you think we could do at the same time as the legal actions are going, which will go back into an update on that? First of all, Charlie, like. What Aaron has started with the 21,000 signatures is the is a movement where almost all um, 
physicians um, that I've spoken to are united in this one aspect that they don't want this. And our voices are heard. Because of that, um, the societies have understood very quickly that their members demand them to take action. There, it's not a, a coincidence that Ash and ASCO, after like 25 years, suddenly decided that they're going to talk, about, talk to the ABIM about Mark. They've realized now tens of thousands of their members want to want them to do this and many of them are even prepared to like not be members anymore if they don't find their societies that they're paying dues for working on their behalf for what they want so i think aaron what you've done is uh, is nothing short of amazing and has really um, um brought us together and made the societies that we are members of aware of how big an issue this is for us. And so I think one of the ways action would happen, Chadi, is for the societies which have more power than any one of us by a single people to take on the ABIM on, you know, on this issue and advocate for abolishing Mark. That's my preferred thing and or changing whatever is going on. Number two, as you mentioned, um, the other thing that we need to do is work with our hospitals and hospital leaders. I think even if one major healthcare system or one major institution says that we are not going to require ABIM mock, we would be happy with NBPAS or, uh, or proof of CME or, or some other proof of uh, continuing education, that'll be enough. Um, then, the, then the whole house of cards falls because uh, every department head in this country knows that their physicians are not happy with this. So um, it's just like we are waiting for one big institution to take on a bold stance. And we are all working with our own hospitals. We, are work we have to advocate to our own leaders and see, because I think that would be one important thing and we need to make it clear to them that um, a decision that they make like that wouldn't immediately mean they lose ACA GME accreditation uh, they'll have still enough people with grandfathered boards and 10-year board certificates to to maintain whatever requirements there are until permanent change happens hmm. the third way it's going to happen is if um, if we make participation in the ABIM boards uh, and like what Aaron just said, like something that we don't approve of so that they don't have enough people who work for them. I mean, I, I think that's a very hard sell. And what really frustrates all of us is compared to anything else we have in life, like, you know, if it's the society that's doing something we don't like, we can quit it. It's optional. It's our freedom. This is an organization where we have no power over. They take money in the form of fees, but we, they are not beholden to us in any way. They're not answerable to us in any way. If we say change this or change that, they can say sorry. They can in, increase the fees. They can increase the amount of testing. There is no recourse. Yeah, that's I mean, the I problem. Think, it's I it's think... just absolutely like they set the tone. They yeah. set the sees we just have to follow which is the antitrust that that was mentioned which i'm looking forward to getting an update on this but but aaron you can understand that it's easy to say you know we're not gonna i mean the only way you can hurt 
society, let's say, is by not renewing membership. And I think, and I think it's fair to say that a lot of people will still renew membership because they see value of being a member of ASH. You want to be, I mean, I think there's an academic conflict of interest um, that, you know, on one hand, you want to be a member of the society that might really provide you with some academic clout when you are there, especially if you're a junior faculty. I mean, it just, I think when you're a professor and you're, you know, you've gotten to the top, you can call the shots. If you remember, it's almost, I say, whenever we were all junior people and you and your mentor tells you to write a review article, and like, of course, I'm going to write whatever it is. I'm going to get a paper. And now you're like, okay, well, uh, unless there's something I really want to do, I don't need to do. So you can, can you understand, Aaron, how it's, it, it's, it's easy to say, just difficult to do? No, I agree. I, maybe I'm in a fortunate situation. Like, like, I don't care. Like, you know, I care about taking care of my patients, teaching, um, doing things that interest me. I don't care about any other stuff. So if someone wants to not invite me to something, cause I'm critical of the ABIM or I don't get some research trial, like that. That don't bother me, but I do completely recognize that I have colleagues where that would right. bother. You know that, that no, I get I I could get it, and that's why this is so hard. That's why we need them to maybe lose a, a lawsuit about antitrust. But I, I also think you know there's enough people with us our mentality like right. We are the future of medicine. You know my the current assistant professors and associate professors. You know like if I ever had some leadership position uh, at a high enough thing, I I I, I would you know, fight for these things as opposed to join them or just ignore and hopefully that not enough people make a big enough stink. I mean, the cynic, the cynic in me is like Ash and Asco and some of the cardiology societies, they knew they had to say something. Uh, um, and if they didn't, it was only going to get worse. And they said something and I, you know, I hope this is not the case, but they said enough to maybe cool us off a little bit. And, and unfortunately, I don't think we we really need That's to. That's why I think off. you should yeah. need to get yeah. another petition. You need to renew. Yeah, no, I'm going to continue, and I think we do need to continue doing this and highlight and 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 raise the energy and maybe even a little bit of anger level. Again, not be critical Look, to individuals, I, but to ideas. Yeah, I, I have yeah. to say, I have to say, I mean, having I probably have done eight podcasts on this, and I've. You know, I've had a chance to meet a lot of people and talk to a lot of people. And I, I've offered anybody who is supportive of this to come on the show as long as there's no conflict of the ABIM and nobody contacted me because there's really nobody who is willing well, to do this. Well, the CEO was on your podcast or CMO. He, he yes. did well. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but, but I really grew after the more I learned, I became more in the West Fisher camp, to be honest. I kind of feel unless the courts really force this. Like I, it is, they're so entrenched with payers and with centers that not only they convince academic centers and hostels that these folks need to be board certified to give privileges, they also convinced payers that don't reimburse them because they probably have high risk or whatever. Like if, if you're not mock certified, that there are risks of the procedure that you do or something like that. So unless a court of law, Wes, comes in and says, this is illegal, whatever it is, I don't, personally, I don't see, you know, we could talk about it all we want, but we need the law. So what happened since this class action lawsuit? It was 2018, now we're 2024. Is there progress? <laughs> There's lots of, lots of uh, updates. I'll try to give the, a very short summary because it's quite complicated. 
Practicing Physicians of America uh, sponsored uh, basically litigation against three of the ABMS member boards. The first was the American Board of Internal Medicine. The second was the American Board of Radiology. And the third that is still ongoing is against the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. Uh, court case number one against the ABIM was uh, put before a senior judge who was 82 years old. It was his last decision of his life or career, I should say, not his life. Um, and he uh, ruled that maintenance of certification and initial certification are all one product called certification. And therefore, there is no case here. And he threw it out. That served as precedent for the subsequent case to the American Board of Radiology. Uh, the first case was filed in the third district in Philadelphia. The radiology case was filed in Chicago. And uh, so the Chicago district judge said, well, the other guy ruled it uh, single product. Therefore, I'm going to throw it out on the basis of precedent to which the radiology plaintiffs appealed uh, to the appellate court level. It went to the appellate court level. And importantly, the appellate court level did side with the plaintiffs that maintenance of certification and initial board certification are separate products. That is a critically important uh, part of their decision. But remarkably, despite curing the uh, various deficiencies that the preceding cases had brought and judges had brought forth, the appellate court added new goalposts that had to be cleared before they would allow it to go to trial and therefore dismissed the case. So we moved so on. So left, we was left with one. One case. So, and mind you, these are three lawsuits, all been brought, class action, antitrust lawsuits, three different cases. And, you know, they have all uh, been looked at very carefully, pleaded on both sides. So the last case was against the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. And the judge, the district judge, that was also filed in Chicago. The district judge there, based on the appellate court ruling, asked the uh, plaintiffs and the defendants, the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, to, they had 10 pages uh, that they could respond. And she said, I want to know from each side how the appellate court decision impacts what should be my decision based on this case because they're similar complaints. And so each side filed their rebuttal, if you will, to uh, or to that or their explanation to the judge about how that impacted. And we were waiting to hear what the decision was going to be. And before we got a decision, the case was moved to a new judge. Is that at the very that, at the that sounds uh, pretty Sopranos like what's going on there? Good question. We don't know, but we know that this is, again, probably a trillion dollar continuing professional development market out there that is being monopolized by a whole bunch so of sudden, people. So suddenly the judge in uh, the judge see, there you we go. We don't know, uh, you know, but we also know that, that some judges have had conflicts of interest of their own, even at the Supreme Court level. Wow. So who knows? Okay. okay. I'm not Okay. We don't know. Okay. Mm -hmm. We are left with what we got. The uh, new judge reviewed what was said in the complaints 
and not surprisingly decided to dismiss the case for even new tweaks to the antitrust law. So once again, the goalposts got moved. However, that judge left open a door for the plaintiffs, there are two plaintiffs in the ABPN case, to file an amended complaint based on you know, the, the issues that he had brought up. And one of the things was he said, well, you haven't really proven that maintenance of certification is the same as CME. And so therefore I'm gonna throw this out. And so the last, the second amended complaint against the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology was filed on the 15th of December of 2023, just recently. And the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology has until February or the end of February to respond to the amended complaint. And then probably sometime mid-summer, I would bet, uh, or thereabouts, uh, the judge will rule whether there is a case or not and whether to permit the case to go to court. If he sides with the plaintiffs, then we'll finally get a hearing uh, that everybody will be, it'll be before a jury and it'll be an antitrust trial. More than likely, if it were to be ruled in the plaintiff's favor, uh, there would be a settlement, most likely. I don't think that the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology sitting on $176 million of assets would want it to go too far down the court, but I am not, you know, they were able to pay their president and CEO $2.8 million. But settlement won't help us, correct? Because we want, we want, we want, I mean, Vincent, you want your day in court, right? You want people to hear what's actually going on, don't you? I think we have to accept if there's a settlement, the settlement will be that maintenance of certification ends, but you can still sure exist. I mean, it could be something as, as big as that. If they go to court, then it could end maintenance of certification nationwide. And it was for that reason, the ability to actually end maintenance of certification, because if one court case succeeds, the entire structure of maintenance of certification dissolves. And if you get your day in court, and, and Vincent, help me out here. I mean, if you get your day in court, you can show the petition. You can show the ASH, ASCO, cardiology. You can go to court and demonstrate how everybody is united. That is correct. Vincent, how do you react to what Wes just summarized? He he just summarized what's going on in the legal action. Does this give you concern, optimism? I mean, we have only one case left. So pretty much if this does not go through, we're done in the legal, unless there's another case that will be filed, which unlikely to go through because now you've got three precedent cases. Uh, hold that thought for just a moment, but we'll get back to that. Okay. Vincent, does uh, what Wes summarized give you optimism or? Um... No, I, I, I think... It is. I'm not sure about what the verdict will be or what the final eventual resolution would be, but I think legal solution is one of the main avenues we realistically have because the societies, as we talked about, are limited um, in what they can or want to do. Um, our institutions are probably worried about accreditation and other issues. Right. 
We are single physicians. I don't know how much power we have. And ABIM and other boards have monopoly power right now and with, without any recourse. So I think the legal avenues are really a great hope. I, I'd really want this case to succeed so that we can have a precedent that other boards can be. Uh... Let, let me give you a thought experiment, Vincent. Let's assume that the longitudinal knowledge assessment was for myeloma physician. You declare yourself as a myeloma specialist. Aaron declares himself as, let's say, a BMT heme malignancy specialist. So the modules that you both get are focused on your area of expertise. So you get basically only myeloma questions uh, every three months, uh, 30 questions. And um, would you be open to that? No. Why? Number one, they have no local standing. I mean, who is somebody in the ABIM to self-anoint themselves to adjudicate my myeloma knowledge or Aaron's BMT knowledge? And, and what is the proof that their multiple choice questions is going to make me deliver better patient care? And they still have the same problems we have with this. And secondly, what I've found with doing all these multiple choice questions is the more questions I get wrong are in my own field. Because the type of questions they ask me, maybe we are all more experts in the area. We find that what they're asking is wrong. The questioner is wrong. Who's going to decide who's right or wrong? See, it goes back to the type of questions they ask too. They don't ask you questions that all of us should and will know, because then all of us will pass. But, but they I ask think questions I think... that someone should get wrong, which means those right. are questions that Dr. You know, two experts could get i mean if you ask a smoldering question aaron and i will give different answers but there are two issues here but there are two issues here see wes is arguing wes's argument to me is that the entire process is frivolous and it is just wrong when i hear you and aaron speak i hear that you're contending that these questions are not showing better quality of care uh, they are not practical. They don't really align with my area of expertise. And no. I think these are two different arguments, yeah. right? I mean, it, I agree completely with what Wes is saying. And I'm just saying that in addition, mm -hmm. the questions are not of value. Right. In addition, these questions are a waste of my time. In addition, these questions are using up my money. And is causing distress to many, many physicians, and none of us like this, and then we have no recourse. These are all, that doesn't take away from the reasons. Aaron, I wanna, uh, in my in my interview with the, and I'm gonna go back to Wes in terms of what would be next steps, because he told me to hold that thoughts. But uh, Aaron, in my interview with Dr. Cliff Huddis, the CEO of ASCO, he shared with me the survey, which was subsequently published in ASCO Post, I believe, and you can go to the podcast and, and hear the survey. But one of the things that honestly was actually pretty provocative in my talk with him, he said that a lot of folks who don't like the process contend that there is no evidence that mock or recertification, quote unquote, improves quality of care. But he said, you can make the same argument for the initial certification. He said, we have no evidence. I mean, essentially, if you're really demanding evidence, 
that evidence doesn't exist for the initial certification, yet you don't hear us ever complain about the initial certification. Help me understand why you don't demand evidence for the initial certification, but you want evidence for the pre-certification. Well, I mean, I want evidence for both, but like, listen, like, let's pick our battles. The, the first thing to get rid of is mock, uh, which is clearly <laughs> asinine and, and stupid. I mean, on January 1st, I got an email from ABIM times three to give them a hand them over another gazillion dollars. And, and as Vincent said, you know, you cannot, our fields, especially the more, yeah, I, I would I like 30 questions on bone marrow transplant? Well, first thought, that sounds better, but no, it's it's worse. It's the shit's so complicated. You cannot distill it to a, a multiple choice question. But why do you need evidence? Tell what, what kind of evidence? evidence? What kind of evidence do you what what study can they do? How do I you evidence? Well, <laughs> ideally, evidence that this makes better care. If they can't do the study, that's because it's if it was such a good thing, it shouldn't be so hard to prove that it does something uh, uh, marginally, meaningfully yeah. well. And if it's yeah. so marginal, which it is. First of all, it's not helpful. It hurts uh, is the bottom line if they ever did the study. But even if there was some benefit, it's so marginal, they would have to do such – that's the whole point. They can't because they, they it's not helpful, okay? There's just no way on earth use common sense that me asking – answering a multiple-choice question on the management of smoldering myeloma that the world well, expert – I mean, I, I mentioned that because I think if I put my clinical trialist hat, it's difficult to design such a study because you're going to have to actually get – a cohort of physicians to do the mock and a cohort of physician not to do the mock. And then you have to get them to take care of certain patients and look at that. Like, it's not something that is easily but, uh, demonstrable. You, shot you need to ask when you interview these, these chairs of our societies, the majority of, of, of the ASCO members and ASH want to get rid of this. So instead of writing a, a statement that we're going to do our best to redo this, or whatever they end up saying, they need to just come out and say, None of our the nine, X amount of percent of our doctors want to do this. We demand this thing go away. And if right. you don't, but that's we're different than demanding evidence. Can we uh, agree? I, I'm telling. I don't. I just they should do what their physicians want want done. Uh, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. Demand Charlie, evidence. Also, I, the demand evidence is a joke because I know they can't make the evidence. Okay. Uh, right. Uh, right? Yeah, I mean, ahead, like ben, I know they're not going to run Vincent. a randomized study. Yeah. Vincent, if you insist that tens of thousands of physicians do this for the right. rest of their career. You should have at least some evidence to back up that something that you're insisting everybody pay money to do is actually delivering something. Now, I'm not the person demanding, so I'm not going to do the ABIM's work of telling them what would be the perfect study to design to prove that. It's their job to show me some proof that this is a this is a valuable exercise if they're going to impose it on us. Okay. Yeah. And secondly, if you were, you were asking for a thought experiment, just think of a thought experiment. Let's the four of us today start the U.S. Board of Internal Medicine, okay? A hundred years from now, there'll be 20, 30 people who are in our U.S. Board. We would have all been dead and gone, and they'll be making rules for everyone else. There is no human called ABIM. It's a bunch of people who got together and called themselves the board. And now yeah. they decide how you will practice. Wes, I wish I thought of this idea before they did. I could have like been, you know, would have been, you know, that's, I'm very upset about this. I'm just kidding, of course. Wes, you told me to hold my thought because I'm concerned about what the judge will decide in the summer, going back to litigation. Uh, let's say he throws away the lawsuit and you don't have your day in court. What are your next steps? Well, it, it may not be my next step. I've been doing this for 10, 11 years, I'm still receiving threatening 
my wife is receiving threatening mailers. Uh, we've engaged the FBI. From who? Uh, oh my God. That I we don't know, but um it's it's obviously somebody who's psychologically very, you know, confused, shall we say, um, to a pathological level. But at the same time, it's reality. Uh, you stick your neck out with some of these things. Uh, these things can happen. This has not been a minor fight. This has been threats. This has been years-long battle of trying to uncover the truth that has been laid bare. Chris Castle, who, and I'm going to use her name because she was president and CEO of the ABIM. At the time, all this became very uh, financially lucrative, uh, was at the time, the entire time she was chair of the American Board of Internal Medicine, was also sitting on the board of Premier Incorporated, one of the largest uh, hospital uh, group purchase organization for the nation's hospitals and uh, nursing homes. Uh, she was also working for Kaiser uh, and in a hospital and health systems on their board and being paid while we were paying her. And so the conflicts of interest, which have never been uncovered, there's only been two presidents and CEOs in the last 19 years at the ABIM, uh, none of which these things are really public knowledge and and, and have been appreciated. Um, they're absolutely egregious and uh, probably illegal, but that's what we're trying to prove. So uh, let's say the judge finds another loophole and says, I'm going to dismiss this case. What do you do? Well, I've done enough already, I think. So uh, I will probably turn it over to some very capable people, but I'm going to need everybody else's help and ask people to join the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons, which was a competition originally developed by Paul Tierstein at, at Scripps in San Diego to try to compete for maintenance certification. And uh, if we all become members of that organization, they get a, a, some cash to run their operations. And not only are all physicians being excluded, okay, and monopolized, but the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons is also being monopolized. And uh, they are being excluded from being a legitimate, even despite having regulatory approval on many levels. The ACGME and the members of the ACGME and many other regulatory bodies have refused to allow them to be an acceptable substitute uh, for ABMS. And because of the monopoly, and the real reason that monopoly exists is because they are selling our data. It is incredibly lucrative. And they very much want to use artificial intelligence and uh, low-level providers to substitute for physicians because it's a good business decision. It is not necessarily a good patient decision, but that is pretty much the end game. And because other competing boards do not share the board certification data with the AMA and, and the National Physician Database, it's hard for insurers with them to deny care because you know they're trying to do regulatory capture of of the money what, what, what data are they selling my answers 
Absolutely. They're the dates and times that your board certification ends. So imagine the minute. But, but that's public. That's public. That's out there on my. No, on my... no, no, no. But but the ABIM through ABMS Solutions LLC, a nonprofit, or I'm sorry, a for-profit organization subsidiary of the American Board of Medical Specialties is selling our data to third parties, including insurers and pharmaceutical companies and everybody else out of Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, it is really about the data that we provide them. When you go into the ABIM website, before you can even get in there to see if you got enough mock points, you have to fill out how many cases you do of certain types, certain things, how many patients you see, how much yeah. clinical time you spend, you build the database for them. Okay. You cannot even get into their website until you build that database. So, Vincent, Wes mentioned this American Board of Physician and Surgeon by Paul Tristan. Um, I hope I did not slaughter his name. Is this something, let's say, you can go to Mayo Medical Staff Privileges and Leadership and say, would you accept that instead of ABIM? Is this something as physicians at your institution, Aaron at UCSD, are you able to say, would you accept that? Is this something acceptable so I could maintain my staff privileges? Do you have the power to lobby for it? I think we could and we should. I think prior to that, um, I think we should probably, Aaron, uh, Wes, Chaddy, we should promote, I hate doing this, but I think we should promote more physicians to join them because yeah. uh, the more member physicians there are we can go to our institutions and say that you know 50 percent of the staff are dual boarded with both abim and bpas and we want to pick and choose which boards we want to maintain yeah. yeah so i have not supported them or or joined yet because like i don't i mean they're clearly better but like don't we then let's say they get approved and they can be the alternative we don't have to do mock don't i still have to hand the money every year for no reason. I mean, like, I don't even want, like, I'm yeah. like, what value are they? They're better. I agree. They're better. No question. Well, here's the thing. Isn't it better to self-select your own CME and have to be doing these exercises, this mock stuff that means nothing to you or your patients? Yes. The National Board of Physicians and Surgeons requires CME, nothing more. What you've already been doing. They're just acting as a clearinghouse and saying, yeah, you did it for, for the, third parties that say that that's really what they want. Well, we know that isn't really what they want. They want your data. So therefore, I bet Mayo Clinic and all these big ACGME, you cannot have an ACGME accredited facility if the person who is the head of that um, department isn't an ABMS board certified physician. So because of that, it, all these big hospital systems that are training centers will lose their accreditation with ACGME because they've also worked that angle. And so therefore what NBPAS is coming up against is that they can't be an alternate board, okay, because of that restriction. And the conflict of interest is ABMS is part of the ACGME, okay? Yeah. So if NBPAS can't be an alternate board, they just keep their monopoly and it keeps on running. And that is why other smaller hospitals that aren't ACGME accredited have accepted MBPAS. But if you've got an ACGME accredited hospital, you got an ACGME accredited uh, bone marrow transplant 
uh, unit. If you've got an ACGME accredited burn unit, guess what? They have to have ABMS board certified people directing them. And therefore, hospitals are going to say, no, we won't be able to get our money from the insurers who are also in bed with the so, you know, so, so, so one of the reasons I want to do this podcast is I really wanted to provide an update into what has happened over the past six months and then provide next steps. I want to try to have like a roadmap for those who are listeners and viewers who really, A, they're very complimentary of the efforts that you and we all have done so far, but they also want to see, okay, and then what? You know, it's, you know, a couple of times I get a text message here and there or an email asking me, so uh, am I supposed to still do the MOC and the recertification? And I say, yes, you do, um, If it, because there's nothing that has changed. So I guess I think we'll provide an update in terms of the legal situation, what Vincent and Aaron have been doing. What are the next steps do we follow up with ash with cardiology with asco do we like what a, give me maybe the top 5 next steps maybe each one of you give me a couple of next steps uh vincent two next steps that you think you'll be doing over the next couple of months i think uh, we need to keep up the pressure on our societies from 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 my standpoint that will be ash asco and ask them to act on our behalf. I've seen their initial responses and now we have to tell them that that's, that's fine, but you need to act on them and we need, we need actual, so, you know, actual uh, uh, responses, not just the petitions. Um, number two, um, I've, uh, I mean, I'm going to be speaking at, uh, at the, uh, Association of Professors in Medicine meeting next month, which is attended by the department chairs. And I have 10 minutes to make my case. And I hope that all the information that you guys have given me, I can make a persuasive case to the important audience, which is the department chairs of medicine from the US academic centers on why is it that we are opposing mock? Are you debating someone? Or are you just uh, giving um... Richard Barron, the CEO of ABIM, is the other speaker. And then um, there are a couple other speakers, including, um, I think, the person who heads the American College of Cardiology's efforts to form a new board. So no definitely, idea. definitely, you need to uh, to debrief with uh, Wes Fisher before you actually have give that uh, talk. I would highly encourage you to listen to the to the podcast Healthcare Unfiltered before. But I, I think I think it would be interesting. I guess my only caution is I would probably suggest not to focus on providing evidence of uh, because we do a lot of things without evidence um so i know rcts are very tough but uh is this something that can be broadcasted like can we listen to it can we attend it where is it going to be i don't know i think the the meeting itself is in uh charleston south carolina okay it's, okay uh, the event is on the 23rd um it's on their website so well good good luck we definitely want you to win the argument but uh i believe we hopefully can arm you with the, a lot of information and slides interject for a second uh, regarding the uh, ACC's efforts to uh, bring together the Heart Rhythm Society, the Heart Failure Society of America, 
and uh, Society of Cardiac and Angiography Interventions. Um, I, I would just like to say that I think uh, they're just trying to take over the revenue stream, uh, at least as I see it, because they are asking the American Board of Medical Specialties for permission to be an alternate board instead of the ABIM, which is kind of crazy because they don't get rid of the problem if if they have to kowtow and, and genuflect to the American Board of Medical Specialties. Uh, the American Board of Medical Specialties and the AMA are much of the problem, if not entirely the problem. And um, there will be no change in the monopoly power over us uh, they may have changed the questions. They may change where the money gets sent, but the bottom line is you'll still have to do it and you'll still have to uh, pay a lot of money. So I don't see any of the efforts made by the societies from the American College of Cardiology to be genuine at this point. Um, they, they are very quiet about what they're planning in the future, uh, but they always preface it that, well, we have to ask the American Board of Medical Specialties for permission to be an, an alternate board from the ABIM. Um, I, I just think that's crazy. Now, the ACC has a lot of money. They have a lot of lobbying power on Capitol Hill. And, uh, you know, so they, they'll have some clout. But but I can tell you, I don't think the AMA is happy about uh, the path they've chosen so far. And I don't think it's going to be a uh, an automatic that they become an alternate yeah. to the American Board of Internal Medicine. But we'll see. Aaron, anything you're going to focus on over the next, uh, I don't know, a couple of months, I guess? No, this talk's actually kind of re, I kind of, you know, I'm all about education and, right, the ACGME, that's our education. I mean, what I want to know from Wes or if anyone knows, who makes that, who are the body of people that say we have to be tied into the uh, to the board certification to, like, for me to teach and work at the Bone Marrow Transplant Center at University, I can't be NBPS. I mean, I can be it, but I still need to maintain my other board. Who who makes that decision? Who who? What group of people is in charge of that? The Medical Executive Committee of your individual center, okay? You probably have bylaws, and those bylaws are created by people, uh, lawyers, and others who have been marketed to by the American Board of Medical Specialties that this is a requirement if you want to call yourself ACGME certified. Yes, but right, UCSD can't just on their own say, we don't want to be ACGME certified. Like, but who, like, right, the ACG said that this is what needs to be done, right? Right. Like, do you understand what I'm asking? Like, yeah. In there, when when you apply to become an, uh, a training center with the ACGME, you have to abide by their rules. Yes, and so the, right the rules are made by the ACGME. Yes. I, I really think we need to go after the ACGME be like, I think first of all, and I'd be happy to support the NBPAS, even though it doesn't won't help me yet. If we all there's a, a critical number of physicians that are joined this this other board, and then we go, what the hell, ACGME? Why aren't you recognizing recognizing us? Uh, um and, and start putting pressure on those individuals to recognize I, I, I think that we could that is something I that I have, a, have I ability to help. That's yeah. a legitimate goal, and the NBPAS is trying to uh, achieve uh, a mark of 25,000 physicians. It would seem that that would be a very simple mark to achieve given your uh, survey, but you only got, what, 21,000, so it's it's not as easy as it sounds. Physicians tend to be sheeple. They tend not to want to have to uh, raise feathers. Uh, they uh, follow rules. They're really good at following rules. So this is outside our comfort zone. So my last question is, look, yeah. we can go on this for hours. Uh, my, my last question is, 
a year from now, the four of us are doing another podcast and we're talking about this. Where are things, where will things be, Vincent, a year from now? I don't know, but I hope it's, uh, we have some change. Uh, you have to realize also that as much as it's frustrating for me to do these mock questions or for Wes uh, or Aaron, we, we, we could just say like, I don't want to do the boards and, and probably somebody asked me on Twitter, what do you think will happen to you? I probably nothing, but we are fighting for a real reason, right? Like we are, we are passionate about this because we are not only thinking of ourselves. This is something that doesn't seem right. And uh, yeah. just like we take on issues that don't seem right uh, in other areas, this is this just doesn't seem right. So we we are we are taking this on um, <laughs> is the same thing um, that I would do in other areas. So in that regard, I, I want to be optimistic that there is a change, not just for me, but for the benefit of all of our colleagues. Aaron, a year from now, aside from your hair being longer, what other changes we may actually see? So I think, I, I, unfortunately, I think a year from now, I'll still be complaining about mock. And uh, well, I don't, I honestly, I, you're right. I think if we don't do it, like what's what's going to happen? I mean, like, right, maybe at the very last second, they'll be like, Dr. Gubin, you're really going to lose your privileges. Well, here. actually, I can tell you what could happen. Because well, what that, would happen? No, Dr. they would I can would tell you. I can tell you because I have, I have a case fixed. example. Yeah. Dr. Krishna Komanduri, yeah. a colleague of ours and uh, a friend of the show, has been on that show. He's currently the division chief at UCSF. He was at Miami before. Krishna actually missed the MOC deadline, whatever it is. He got a, a letter, and he would tell you this. I should bring him on the show. He got a letter that he missed this, and he needs to do the recertification exam. He's like, well, I missed, like, there was a dead. I think he was, I don't know, away or something. He missed the deadline that you actually get every 30 days. So they told him he would be reported as not board certified. And in order for him to be board certified, he has to sit for the 10-year examination. They would not allow him to do the other one. So now he told me when I saw him at Ash, he has to do the 10-year recertification. So what could happen, basically, you would be reported on their website as not certified. That's what could happen. They, they technically could report you as not certified. Yeah, now, your, insti nothing. your yeah. institution may not care. That's one. The payers may not care. I don't know. But I don't think that's applicable to everybody else. I can tell you that many institutions do care and many payers do care. So... I don't know, but you would be re if you don't do it, you would be reported as not certified. I will also ask, and and this would be a great thing for any debate with Richard Barron. Ask him one question: Have you ever studied the harms of maintenance of certification? Just like you would study the harm of a drug or a therapy of any kind, have you ever studied the harms of this? And I can tell you, I asked him that question years ago, and it fell on deaf ears, and he absolutely had no answer to that question whatsoever because he knows that they have never studied any of the harms caused by maintenance of certification. Well, Practicing Physicians of America sent out a survey from social media. Oh, we had over 7,000 physicians respond. 394 had been directly harmed by maintenance of certification, and these were not minor harms. These were loss of jobs having to move, loss of credentials, loss of privileges. And it was from that list that many of the plaintiffs arose from because they were directly harmed by this process. Yeah. And if we're thinking that we're helping patients 
by hurting physicians. That logic is incredible to me that we've not even looked at what the downside of this is to physicians, both not only from an economic standpoint, but from a psychological standpoint as well. We're losing physicians more than ever. They're burned out and they're leaving medicine. And if we want to keep this racket going, we'll, this is just going to exacerbate the physician shortage in America. Well, this is a perfect uh, ending to this podcast. Uh, sorry, we went over the hour. It's just very, um, uh, we can talk about this forever. It's uh, getting late. We will air this on February 13, very fitting um, around Valentine's Day. Um, you know, out of the love and passion to education. Uh, thank you to all of you for everything that you're doing. And I think we just owe it to everybody else that to continue the fight, I guess, and to continue providing updates. And maybe we do that every few months and just see where things are, because I think we definitely have to figure out what's happening with the lawsuit. And we'll probably do this in the summer, Wes, see what, what's going on there. So Doctors Vincent Rajkumar, Aaron Goodman, and Wes Fisher, thank you for coming on Healthcare Uncultured. Okay, folks, this is Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you so much for tuning in and for being on this podcast. Don't forget to please um, uh, rate the podcast, subscribe to it, let your friends and colleagues know about it. You can watch all of these podcast episodes on YouTube channel. And uh, I really would appreciate if you subscribe to it and like these. Uh, also, thank you to my guests, Drs. Fisher, Goodman, and Raj Kumar for being on the podcast. We are going to continue providing you with updates about the ABIM MOC, and hopefully you can tune in and let me know what you are thinking. It may be fitting, but I'm going to let you go with a saying from Winston Churchill. If you're going through hell, keep going. Until next time, take care.